morning. Welcome each of you to this service this morning. If you would, you could turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. Thank you for this day given to us. Thank you for the things that we've heard so far. I just pray now that you would be with me as I 
present the message I believe is given to me. Just pray give me clarity of thought, give me the words to speak. Just pray that each one of us could live lives being more than conquerors. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 is probably one of, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. Although quite often I believe it's not quoted in its entirety. Perhaps some people would say all things work together for good. One phrase picked out sounds good. That's a broad statement. There's some qualifiers yet found in the verse. To those who love God, the next phrase narrows it down a good bit. To people who love God, yet lots of people claim to love God. Do all things work together for good just because people claim to love God? The rest of the verse says it's for those who are called according to his purpose. I believe this is a key part of the verse. So some questions. Are all things good? Are all things working together for good for all people? What is good? Some questions we'd like to have answered in this message. While this verse does stand alone as truth, I believe we look at it in the context of the portion we read here this morning. There's a greater lesson for us. So we'd like to look at this verse in the context of Romans 8, especially the verses 16 on. And see that we can live lives being more than conquerors, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We're going to look at three things that we can remember as we face life's trials. The number first thing we want to look at is we are citizens of the eternal, presently living in the temporal. And that is our real identity. Another way to say it is simply to say that we are children of God. We see this mainly in verses 16 through 19 that we read. Verse 16, we read, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is a wonderful place to be. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We claim to be the children of God, and the Holy Spirit says, yes, that is true. That sounds wonderful, right? But how, do we, how does this happen? How do we get to that point where the Holy Spirit bears witness that when we say we're the children of God, he can say that is true? Certainly, we don't present an argument to the Holy Spirit and persuade him that we are children of God. There's no way. That's not the way it works. It comes from being at a place where we are not in conflict 
with the Spirit. The Spirit's job is to guide us in the ways of God. We're at a place when the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons and daughters of God. When we have aligned our lives according to, to the will of God. We go all the way back to verse 1 here in Romans 8. We read, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We've made a choice not to walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit who guides us. The first 15 verses here in Romans 8, we see the contrast of the flesh and the Spirit several times over. And there could be a message in and of itself right there. We're not going to look at it very much. Paul realized that on his own, he could not obey God. It's not just a matter of simply making a decision, we're not going to serve the flesh. Paul talks about this conflict back in verse, back in chapter 7. Just picking out a few verses here in this conflict he talks about. Where he goes back and forth talking about the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 19 here in chapter 7, Paul says, For the good that I would, I do not. He wants to do good, but he doesn't do good. But the evil, which I would not, that I do. Paul wants to do well, and yet he ends up doing evil. And he talks on a little bit and sums it up, sums up his, his conflict in verse 24. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Came to the point he realized he cannot do it on his own. Need to, when we realize this, that we cannot, on our own, do right, do God's will. When we realize this and surrender our own will to God and accept Jesus as Savior, then we are given the power to become the sons of God, as we read in John 1.12, and we can walk in newness of life, that we read of in Romans 6.14. And we don't have to, and we don't go through the Christian life alone. Paul talks about this in Romans 8 here, verses 10 to 15, preceding what we read this here. Paul says in verse 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body is dead because of sin. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, won't take the time to turn there, but he says, I am crucified with Christ. He chose to crucify the flesh, to allow the flesh to be crucified. And he says here, verse 10, we are dead. The body is dead, the physical body. No, we're not physically dead. But the spirit, our own fleshy spirit, is dead because we chose to crucify it with Christ, because of that, the Spirit is life. The Spirit gives us life to live victorious Christian lives. The Spirit helps us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. 
And who are God's sons? Those who are led by the Spirit. As we read in 14 here, verse 14 here, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We are adopted children of God. Verse 15, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to, the, to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So to sum it up, when we are led by the Spirit, as we read out in verse 14, and cry, Abba, Father, verse 15, the Spirit can and does bear witness that this is true, which we read about in verse 16. In these verses, we see a brief overview for the basis of us being the sons of God. And we read in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, we have the privilege and blessing of being heirs of God with Jesus. Because of that, we will be glorified with Jesus, which you read here, also that we may be also glorified together. This is our heavenly hope. We'll be glorified together. This happens at the end of our lives. We'll be glorified, given glorified bodies in heaven, which we'll look at a little bit later, a little more. This world is not all that there is. It's one of the ways we can face life's trials with victory. When we realize that this world is not our home, this world is not all that there is, we have an inheritance in heaven. We will receive glorified bodies. A lot of the things that we face in life happen to these physical bodies. Our physical bodies get injured. They get cold, sick, hungry, and eventually they get old. And maybe we could add some more things to that list. There's a thing that happened to this physical body that we receive glorified bodies won't happen. And yet I purposely skipped a part of this verse. And if we're joint heirs with Christ, if so be we suffer with him. Before we get our glorified bodies, we will suffer with Jesus. And yes, some more than others. Jesus did not have it easy on this earth. And we cannot expect to have it easy in this, in this temporal world either. However, we as Christians can keep suffering in perspective because we know this world is not all that there is. Verse 18 is... Somewhat of a triumphant verse, I think. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This puts suffering in perspective. Suffering for the Christian is only a temporal thing. Paul said, I don't think it's even worthy to be compared to what's coming. Keep our eyes on what's coming. We realize this isn't even worth getting worked up about. Now, but we're 
We as Christians are in earthly bodies that doesn't come easy. Because we, because we do get hurt, we get sick, things happen. But yet, if we keep our perspective on Christ and what's coming, we realize it's not worthy to be compared. And I noticed something interesting in this verse. Something I didn't ever look at, didn't ever notice before, the way it's actually worded. It says, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It does not say the glory that shall be revealed to us. It says in us. I think this might be, I think this is significant. And Paul does not really go on to expound what he means by the glory that shall be revealed in us. Certainly a lot will be revealed to us. There'll be lots to see in heaven. But I believe that part of heaven will be when God shows what he can do when he gives us glorified bodies. If we turn to 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 2 Corinthians first, then we'll go to 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Second Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this tabernacle being our body, were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Talk about a new body in heaven. Doesn't really, once again, he doesn't really say what his new body is going to look like. He probably didn't know either. It's going to be something wonderful. Tonight. Then 1 Corinthians 15, Brother Josh mentioned, was here last week in his devotional. Read some of these verses again. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this corruptible, talk about this, this body of flesh that we live in now, must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. We don't know what it's going to look like. And yet he talks about a little bit in some previous verses. Uh, start at verse 40 here of First Corinthians 15. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another in glory. So is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised in spiritual body. There is a natural body. The body we're in now. And there is a spiritual body. The one we're going to get. Once again, he doesn't really expel. Notice somewhere. Here it is. Verse 37. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may be by chance of wheat or some other grain. The point he's bringing out of here is, when you plant a seed, it doesn't look, it typically doesn't look anything like what grows. 
you imagine a 100-year-old oak tree, it started out as one little round acorn. I guess maybe some people like acorns, but it's just little. It grows into some big, impressive tree in 100 years. Or a lot of us like to plant flowers. Sometimes you buy them at a greenhouse. Someone else plants a seed, and sometimes you buy a seed. A lot of flower seeds look like dirt. If you see it on your floor, you might recognize it as dirt more than a seed. You don't normally set a few flower seeds on your table to look pretty. Yet if you plant them, turn into something beautiful, like make a nice flower arrangement for a few days. I think that's what Paul's saying. I guess the point, could it be that our bodies are mere seeds for what's coming? Could it be that the difference between a seed that looks like a piece of dirt and a nice flower is the difference between our bodies now and the bodies we're going to get? The glory that shall be revealed in us. I believe that's what Paul is trying to say there when he's talking about sowing seeds. And also, thinking down the same line, Paul says here in verse 19, back in Romans 8, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, here in a few verses in a row, creature is mentioned, and creature, I'm not sure, is always referring to the same kind of creature. But here in verse 19, I think creature is referring to us as people. As far as I know, people are really the only creatures that are able to anticipate the future. The creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The manifestation of the sons of God, I also found it to be an interesting concept. Manifestation, I looked it up in dictionary, it's down the line of disclosure. almost get the idea that someday... God will show off who his faithful are. In this world at times, we are misunderstood. Sometimes we're falsely accused. The day's coming when God will show who his real children are. And we'll set the record straight. I think that's part of what this verse means. When that time comes, we want to be in right standing with God. We certainly don't want to be set straight. After it is too late. Are we the children of God? Are we listening to the Spirit? Can the Spirit bear witness that we are the sons of God? One of the shortest verses in the Bible. Quench not the Spirit. When we are nudged by the Spirit to get back on track, we need to do so. So, first thing we realize we are citizens of the eternal, presently living in the temporal. Another thing to realize as we face life's trials and circumstances, and I think we all know this, I think we need to be reminded from time to time, this temporal world, where we are living, is broken. Paul said, says in verse 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. God had to deal with sin. 
The world's broken because of Adam and Eve's sin. Because of that, we are subjected to vanity. Now, when I think of vanity, the first thing that comes to my mind is pride. I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about there. Subject to vanity. Let's think, done a lot of being vain. The world is subject to being vain, to feeling pointless. Doesn't life at times feel pointless from a human perspective? What is the point of it all? This world is cruel. There's a picture picture that came to my mind somewhere I saw it. I guess I'll try to draw it for you. I'm not a very good drawler. But talk about the cruel. Think about the cruel world that we live in. Okay. This is bad. I am not a good drawler, but all right. Well, I think I can get a point across if I explain it. We have a little fish being chased by a bigger fish. He's chased by a bigger fish. He's chased by even bigger fish. Somehow my drawings worked a little better on paper, but isn't that what the world feels like sometimes? What's the point? We're going to get eaten up by somebody. And the big fish, maybe that's a whale, he might get washed on shore and be a beached whale, and there he dies. And everybody's dead. A picture of the cruel world that we live in. We have been subjected to vanity, to futility, another way to say it, because of sin. We are born, we are born as babies. We live. Life is hard. We die. Humanistic perspective of the world. It causes people, non-Christians, to question the point of life. What is the point of it all? Life is pointless. Because, but only because the world is broken. This world is only temporal. God had told Adam, the world, in my own words, that the world was going to break if he sins. He said, in the day you eat that fruit, you're going to die. A separation would take place. And as Paul says here, the world became subject to vanity. We have been subjected to this because of Adam's sin. We read, in Adam, all die. And yet, also in this verse 20, we see that we have been subjected in hope. There is hope. Because the creature itself, creature itself, creature being us, shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In this broken world, we can have hope. Because we know that this world is not all that there is. We know deliverance is coming. As we read back in 1 Corinthians 15, 
This corruptible shall put on incorruption. And suffering is not limited. Suffering because of sin is not limited to people. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. All of creation is groaning. All of creation is broken because of sin. Animals suffer the effects of sin. Sometimes the things animals do that seem terrible. Why don't our rabbits take care of their babies? Why do rabbits have babies and not take care of them? They're supposed to grow up to be cute bunnies. It's the effect of sin. Why do earthquakes happen? Whole creation is groaning and travailing together, even to this present time and will, as long as time goes on. But we have hope. This world is not our final home. Paul said in verse 24, we are saved by hope. And we're not talking here about the saving of our souls, I don't think. We're not saved just because we hope we can go to heaven. We're saved by hope. I think what I take us to mean is we are saved from living a life of despair. When we know something better is coming, life's trials tend to seem smaller. When we hope in something coming, when we hope in something that is coming in the future, we're hoping for something that we haven't experienced yet. Because hope realized is no longer hope. And we need to hope in patience. But you see in 25. But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We must never lose patience. We never lose hope. Because if we lose patience, we will lose hope as well. So we have seen who we are in Christ. We are the children of God. We are children of God living in the temporal. We have seen that this world is broken because of sin. The third thing we'll look at is we are being prepared for the eternal. Verses 26 through 30. As we live our lives here in this temporal world and we pray, we receive help when we pray. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray, for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit helps us when we pray. Paul mentions infirmities here. Infirmities refer to feebleness of body or mind. In this case, we're talking about our mind. Now, we're not meaning that each of us here is necessarily feeble-minded. But we as humans typically do not have God's perspective on a given situation. So we could say that compared to God's perspective, our minds are quite feeble. And therefore, we don't... We often don't pray exactly as we should. And that's why we need to pray according to God's will. This shows surrender to his will. 
we say that and we see also the spirit maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God does care and totally understands the things that we are facing. Even the Holy Spirit has groanings which cannot be uttered. I'm not sure I totally comprehend all that. But it's a comfort to know that God understands the things we're going through. Now, verse 27, so I find to be an interesting and fascinating verse. I'm not sure I ever heard anybody expound on it. I've got some ideas that I'm not sure I ever heard of before. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. How does the Spirit help us when we don't pray as we should? Back in verse 26, it says, We know not what, what we should pray for as we ought. Meaning, we don't always pray the way we should. And the Spirit, and he that searcheth the hearts, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit searches our hearts and ideally sees that we ultimately want God's will to be done in us and through us. We would say that's our goal, right? We should. Not always easy. That should be our goal as Christians, for God's will to be done in us and through us. And he that searches the hearts, I believe we're bringing Jesus into this now also. He that searches the hearts, ideally, he that searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, what God's will is for us. So what has just taken place? I'll read it again. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Is it possible, and I tend to believe that it is, that the prayers we pray in our humanness with a surrendered posture of heart might get tweaked by the Spirit to be presented to the Father? It says he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, this should not be an offensive to us, but rather an assurance that we in our humanness can pray correctly because the Holy Spirit is going to present our prayers to God according to his will. Be interesting to hear some of your thoughts on that sometime. I thought that verse is interesting. Then, brings us to verse 28. We are being prepared for the eternal in the things that happen to us. And we know that all things work together for good to them who, that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The things that God allows into our lives will work for our good. Now, there is a difference between what God causes to happen 
and what God allows to happen. Even though at times it is hard to tell exactly, did God cause this to happen or did God allow this to happen? I'm not sure we need to spend too much time trying to figure it out. I don't think it really matters. Reality is this world is broken. Most likely a lot of the things we face are because of the brokenness of the world. So typically, I don't know that God is often directly making bad things happen to us. At times, he might, in order to get our attention. But typically, it's probably just because the world's broken and God allowed it to happen to us. I certainly don't believe that God causes people to sin. Often, the things we face are because of someone else's sin or their wrong choice. So I don't believe God causes people to sin. He allows them to, and sometimes other people suffer because of it. For example, I don't believe that God made Joseph's brothers sell him, nor did he need them to for his will to be accomplished. But they did, and God worked his purpose. God is so much bigger for us, and we can't exactly understand all the time how he can take bad situations and work his purpose out of it every single time. If we suffer because of someone else's wrong choice, we can find comfort in the fact that God is still in control and he is allowing it for some purpose he wants to do in our lives. Now we ask the question at the beginning, are all things good? The answer is no. All things are not good. I don't believe we need to all the time say that they are good. The verse says they are working together for good. And certain individual events, we may never see the good that came from them. But it says that all things are working together for good. So it might take a series of bad things that happen to us to work together for good. If we're trusting God, we really don't need to understand why bad things happen to us. Trust does not need to understand, although we as humans typically want to understand. What is good? What good could possibly come from the situation that we face? The answer comes in the following verses. For whom, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. One good thing that can come from the things that happen to us is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. They teach us patience also. We turn back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, different troubles, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through trials. We are taught patience through trials. And the kingdom can be furthered. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen to his people to draw other people to him. If we are, indeed, to call it according to his purpose, 
we can expect him to work his purpose in us and through us, but sometimes it will hurt. And we need a verse to cling to that says that we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We ask the question, do all things work out for good for all people? The answer is no. This verse has the qualifier in it. To those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a promise for the Christian. Non-Christians cannot claim this verse. Certainly sometimes non-Christians do benefit from things going wrong. They can see a benefit come out of it. But ultimately, the only work that God is doing in their lives is trying to draw them to himself. Oftentimes, God makes a spectacle of other people's wrong choices so he can teach Christians, so he can show Christians what happens when you don't follow his will. God is indeed doing a work in us. If we have been called, we have been called according to his purpose. Part of the surrender that took place, this is part of the surrender that took place when we surrendered our hearts to God. To allow God to work in us and through us. God is saying, are you willing to let me work my plans in your life? And it might say now that I have, in my short life, I think I'm still young. I have faced things that were hard, results of other people's poor choices, and yet I could say that I learned lessons through those times that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. And, and good did indeed occur from those circumstances. Also, we see here in verse 29 that we have been predestinated. We've been predestinated because God foreknew us. It's hard to wrap our minds around this predestination concept completely. Man has free will. God functions outside of time and knows ahead of time who will choose him. God's will is that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brethren. We've been predestinated to be the firstborn among many brethren. We read in John 3.16 that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. I'm getting confused. So Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Yes, God gave his only begotten Son. And we are the adopted children. It says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is the firstborn. We as adopted children represent the many brethren. We have been called. Verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So we have been called. Some wrongfully believe that God only calls those whom he has predestinated ahead of time to be Christians. <clears throat> we believe this to be error according to Scripture, because that is 
because we would believe that God has free will. I see verse 30 as being overlapping to verse 29. He says, moreover. So I see it as an overlapping concept. Paul's repeating it, repeating his thoughts in verse 29 with a few added thoughts. I would suggest that the call we read about in verse 30 goes beyond the initial call to become a Christian. Rather, this calling continues after our conversion. The call is ongoing in our lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The being conformed to Jesus' image is a lifelong process. We are being we are being justified. What's justification? If we turn to Hebrews twelve. Hebrews twelve verses five and six. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The justification process is taking away everything that doesn't look like Jesus in our lives. Maybe I'll use Ben Timmers too. Not exact, not a totally different concept than what Ben used. Suppose this is the image of Jesus Christ, and suppose this is us that he's trying to get into our image, in his image. It's going to take some grinding, right? I think if you take a grinder to this thing, you could come up with this, with enough talent. So, this is what God has to work with in our lives, and this is what he wants to make us look like. He's going to take the grinder to us. Grinder don't feel good. Sometimes things get hot. Sparks fly off of us. I'm not sure why we're spiritualizing the sparks coming off. But anyway, things don't feel good. Sometimes the things we face in life are to bring attention to sin in our lives. God doesn't force us. We can't actually resist the grinder. He doesn't force us to be conformed. He brings things in our lives to mold us to hone us down, but he doesn't force it. We have to allow it. Sometimes it is to remove something that may not exactly be sin, but it's an area we could use improvement, an area that's not helping us to be conformed to Christ's image. And God uses people to bring attention to things in our lives also. Sometimes he doesn't do it perfect. Sometimes God doesn't do this Personally, he uses other people. When people bring things to our attention, we must be open to it and not just dismiss it as a false accusation. We want to have a balanced approach that we don't just claim, I'm, the church, I'm a child of God. You're just making a false accusation. Sometimes it might be God using somebody. Earthly parts, when God, in the justification process, God wants us to crucify earthly parts of us. 
Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. We sang a song this morning. I'll get the book so I get it right. Number 699. I think sometimes it's easy to sing a song and not pay attention to what we're actually singing and what we're actually asking God to do in our lives. But he's saying, Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into thy holy likeness to grow. That's not offensive. That sounds like a good idea. Thirsting for more and deeper communion, yearning thy love more fully to know. That's all pleasant, I think. That's all pleasant sounding. But verse 2, dead to the world would I be, O Father. There's a lot that goes on in the world that looks exciting. Dead unto sin, alive unto thee. Sin looks exciting sometimes. Let's be dead unto it and alive to Christ. Then we sang, crucify all the earthly within me. We said that. We want Christ to crucify the earthly parts of us. That's going to hurt. Emptied of sin and self may I be. If that's the position, if that's the posture of our hearts, and we allow God to do that in us, then we can honestly sing, I would be thine and serve thee forever. Fill with thy spirit, lost in thy love. Come to my heart, Lord, come with anointing. Showers of grace send down from above. Crucifying our earthly parts does not feel good. But we are being justified because God wants to work a work in our lives. We see also that there is a glorification coming. Whom he justifies, them he also will glorify. And I think this part is for the eternal world. I don't. That's what's coming in to us in heaven. The last part we want to look at is living as conquerors. I would title this message "More Than Conquerors." God is for us. And who can be against us? Paul said, what shall we say to these things? The thing, referring to the things that we face, things that aren't pleasant. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God has a lot invested in each one of us. We read in 32, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God invested his son. He spared not his own son so that he could save mankind. He that began a good work in us will continue it. My paraphrase of Philippians 1.6. God invested a lot in us. He is going to continue his work if we allow him to. He's not going to quit. God before us, who can be against us? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, maketh intercession for us. As we go through life, people make false accusations. People will try to condemn us. But who can condemn us? Ultimately, people can't. Does it really matter? <clears throat> Sure, it don't feel good. It feels like it matters. 
But ultimately, if God be for us, who can be against us? And Paul says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? A lot can fall into that category. No one can separate us. Even though it feels like we're being killed all the day long. Verse 36, he says, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And I'm not sure if Christ, that we necessarily fully have experienced this. There's Christians that live in persecution. They feel like they are killed all the day long and they're counted as sheep for the slaughter. And there are places, there's been times when Christians are considered just for slaughter and that's what we need to do with them. But, God, Paul says in verse 37, Nay, referring back to verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All these bad things? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now what does it mean, what does it mean to be more than conquerors? Well, if you conquer, you've won. For example, if you play a game of volleyball, you play until 15 points, whoever gets 15 points first wins. If you win 15 to 14, you've won. If, however, you begin the game and your team serves 15 balls and they all end up landing on the other side and you win 15 to nothing, you can say that you are more than a, you have more than conquered. You have totally vanquished the other team. They never had a chance. That's what Paul's trying to say we can do. We can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. We focus on the love of God. We can more than conquer the things that happen to us. Are for our good. They don't they can't separate us from the love of God. We can be more than conquerors. When we remember that we are citizens of the eternal, presently living in the temporal, we can have the right perspective to be more than conquerors. Consider yourself being a spectator of your own problem, rising above life's circumstances. You're more than a conqueror. You're almost like a spectator of things that are happening to you. We sing as, with wings as we, eagles. An eagle is a good is a good picture of freedom floating around the sky high up above earth's problems. We can rise up with wings as eagles. We can be more than conquerors. This is how a Christian can peacefully go to and through a brutal martyr's death. Looking at it from a heavenly perspective, and almost being a spectator of their own problems. I think as Christians, with the eternal perspective, we can go through life's trials almost being a spectator of our problems. Yes, we will feel it. And no, I am not promoting disengaging from reality. We have been given responsibilities by God. 
We cannot just check out and say, we're just going to watch life go by, watch whatever happens happen to us because it doesn't matter. We have to be given responsibilities. We want to have a balanced look. But we can't have the same persuasion that Paul had in verses 38 to 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us and is working all things for the good of his children. What is good? Again, it's our justification. It's to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God is our father. Good parents do not merely seek to make life pleasant for their children. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When we face the all things of life, we need to remember who we are and where we are going. This broken world is not our home. We are being prepared for the eternal. And we can rise above life's circumstances and be more than conquerors. Maybe we could kneel and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day you've given to us. We thank you for the promises found in your word. We thank you that we have verses like Romans 8:28 that we can cling to. We can say that we can say with assurance that all things do work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to your purposes. We thank you that you are working your purposes in our lives. We just pray you would continue to mold us into the image of your son Jesus Christ. We just pray that you would help us during these times. Pray that we would be moldable and allow you to work in us and through us and take away the things that shouldn't be there. Just pray help us to be workable servants for you. Just pray help us to go through life just to live as more than conquerors. In your name we pray. Amen.